For the team that he's given us to do this, a couple of our folks, including Caleb, are at another church this morning that isn't blessed with a team like we are, and they are ministering to them, and that excites me more than you could possibly imagine. A church in southern Maine that we're a part of, it's not just, just us, and so... Caleb's out there today. Say a quick prayer for them as they minister. It's fantastic. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Steve. I'm a member of the elder team here at Hall Center Church and a member of the preaching team. And welcome to September. And as I said earlier, make sure you've got your communion stuff. We're going to do that as we um, finish up today. So we're in our series on wandering. We're getting there, guys. We're getting there. And so I just want to, as we, as we journey through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I want you guys to make sure the themes that we've been seeing as we study um, just continue to remind you that, yeah, this is Old Testament. These are the, the clean pages in your Bible, but the, the, the beauty and the, the strength of the messages there is just, just amazing. So we saw in Leviticus basic theme, God graciously provides a way for people to live in his presence. And as we kept going and we studied a little about the, about the temple and we saw how that was laid out and we saw what Jesus did when he cleansed it and we saw what was going on there, we saw that we get the temple's job of being meant for prayer and for drawing outsiders to him. And then we you cannot go very far in these books without seeing a whole bunch of folks complaining a lot. And we saw the desiring God's stuff or desiring God to serve you more than desiring God himself creates a complaining spirit. And last week, we saw some amazing examples of influence done well and influence done poorly. And we came to the conclusion that we are all influencers and that Jesus shows us how to be the best influence on those around us. And so the outline that I keep showing you every single week as we're in the book of Numbers, we are going to be in the very last section today in the next slide of 22 through 36 in the plains of Moab. And I'll give you a little description of what's going on there in just a bit. Got a lot to get through. Again, my sidekick, Pat, is ready back there. Today's sermon, titled, Tight Grip. And we are in Numbers 22 through 24. If you have your Bibles, go there. Again, there's going to be a bunch of it on here. Um, but we are going to be looking through Numbers 22 through 24. And this idea of a tight grip, I need you to hang on to it tightly throughout the sermon today. Think about it. There are times in our lives where we're supposed to hold with a tight grip, right? You all went to driver's ed, if you're old enough and whatever, and you're tight grip, 10 and 2, remember? Got to hold it. None of us do anymore, ever. Um, but you're supposed to. 
So there's things that we're supposed to keep a tight grip on, then there's things that we're not supposed to keep a tight grip on. Probably my earliest memory of Uncle John, I got him in here. My earliest memory of Uncle John, and this will make sense to all of you, was we were at someone's camp, and I literally was probably five years old. We were at someone's camp, and they said, hey, you guys want to learn to water ski? And I'm like, I'm five years old. No, I don't want to learn to water ski. But what does Uncle John say? Yeah, that looks cool. And my, and so John gets his stuff on, and he gets his skis on, and then he gets a tight grip on the rope, and the boat goes, and he fell, and he did not let go. He did not let go. You can imagine. He's a little obstinate. He's a little stubborn. He held on to that thing, and he's still blowing water out of his nose today. It was crazy. And he was done. That was it. No more learning. He was through because he held on for so long. The tight grip. The point I want to make today is we need to constantly evaluate those things that we are keeping a tight grip on. We need to constantly think, okay, I've got something. I'm holding on. Should I be or should I let it go? And we're going to see today, we're going to see things that people held with a tight grip and shouldn't have and things people should have held on to and didn't. And so we're going to talk about a character in the Bible named Balaam. And when you think of Balaam, those of you spent time in Sunday school and whatnot. When you think of Balaam, you almost always think of the animal that he was riding, right? And that animal was an ancestor to the animal in the Christmas carol you all sing, where ox and donkey are sleeping. Yes? You know that Christmas carol? That one? Okay. Some of you will understand where I'm going here. We're not going to use the hymn word today. We're going to use the term donkey. And this is what we're going to see today. This is one of the coolest, strangest, weirdest, wildest accounts in Scripture. And it's amazing, and it's beautifully put together. Uh, you have questions when we're done? So will I. This thing, this passage, lets you, lets you run with some stuff. Uh, but there's no doubt that God has something for us in it. So we're going we're gonna to go through it and see what that is. So let's go ahead and pray as we jump into the Word. Dear Heavenly Father, thanks for today. Thanks for the team that we have leading us in worship to this point. Thank you for the words that we've sung that just so focus on Jesus and that he's all we need and what he's done for us. Help us as we dive into your Word to realize that that's where your Word is constantly pointing us. And when we think about a tight grip and we think about those things in our lives that we hold on to so tightly, may we redeem those things. May we let you help us let go of those things we shouldn't and grab a hold of those things that we should. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me set this up where we are. The Israelites are getting toward the end of their 40 years in the wilderness. They're almost done. That entire generation had to pass, and they've grown in number in 40 years as well. And they're headed toward the promised land, and they needed to pass through the land of the Amorites. So we're going to go back a chapter here just to set it up for you. 
and they asked for permission to go through the land of the Amorites. And I want to make sure you hear this. Numbers 21, 22, it's not up here. This is what um, the Israelite messenger said. Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we've passed through your territory. This is the Israelites. They're asking for permission to go through the land of the Amorites. We are not going to touch a thing of yours. We're going to stay on the highway until we're through. And the Amorites, known as and were a nation of fierce warriors, said no. And, and not just no. Instead, they came right out and attacked the Israelites. And so Israel says, can, can, we, can we just walk through your lawn? And they said no, and then began attacking and started a war, and they lost badly. They lost very badly. So you can check all that out in chapter 21. And so the Israelites made it through. Uh, God will make a way when there seems to be no way, right? And they set out and camped in the plains of Moab, just outside the promised land. And so let's just jump right into the word. Um, Numbers 24, verse 2. And Balak... Balak, or however you want to say it, I'm going to say Balak, the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So this chapter starts with this guy seeing that Israel just made mincemeat of the Amorites. And Balak is the king of Moab. And the passage goes on to say that a great dread came over him. Why? Why would he have such a great dread about the Israelites showing up? Well, because the Israelites just defeated the Amorites. And guess who had just defeated the Moabites? Which is Balak's people, the Amorites. Okay, so Israel just killed, took out the nation that had just ruined us. And now the Israelites are camped in full view of him, and he knew he could not defeat them. He knew it. And his expectation that was next would be his own people's defeat. So he knew he couldn't handle it militarily. And so he said, let's find another way. And as we continue uh, partway through verse 4, it says, So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was the king of Moab at the time, sent messengers, and this is your first introduction to him, to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor. So our first introduction, he is a well-known diviner, guy, dude, seer, soothsayer, whatever you want to know, who was just well-known for his curses and his blessings. People could go to Balaam and say, look, I need you to curse this person, and here's some money, and Balaam would do it, and that's the reputation he had. What a weird career. But that's, that's, that's what we know about Balaam. He was for-profit. He was a for-profit prophet. Got it? Okay. And here's what Balak said to Balaam through the messengers that he sent. This is in verse 5. Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. He says, they're too mighty for me. I need you to curse them so something bad happens and they stop being a problem for me. At this point, however, there is no indication at all that the Israelites are going to pose a problem to the Moabites. 
But we all know how paranoia works. We all know how worry works. And Balak was doing something that we often do. He was awfulizing the situation. He was going all the way to the worst end. You ever found yourself awfulizing situations? In any case, Balaam tells the messengers to stay overnight and he'd see what God says. And on your own time this week, read through this and, and try to make sense of it. Try to understand. It, it, this is some really, really cool stuff. You've got to come up 5,000 feet, which is what we're going to do today, to see what God is really doing here. But Balaam tells the messengers, hey, why don't you stay overnight and I'm going to see what God says. And all of a sudden I'm like, well, wait, seriously? This guy who is a for-profit prophet thinks God's going to talk to him? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But guess what? God actually does show up. And God talked to Balaam. Is Balaam in charge? Nope. We'll keep reading and see how obvious that is. But God does talk to Balaam and God is doing the work here. So let's look at verse 12. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. In a word, how about no? Okay? These are my people. You're not going to curse them. You just won't. Okay? And I need you to make sure you own this. God says, you are not going to curse them. What if Balak wanted, what if Balaam wanted to? He's not going to curse God's people. And this is so true. And so what? We have such a great single, great thing that happens right now. Balaam sends him away. He says, sorry, God told me I can't. See you later. Seemed like Balaam's grip is pretty strong on the truth that you don't want to mess with God or his people. But Balak got the word back and was not going to let it go that easily. He was desperate. Remember, he's awfulizing the future, and so he sent princes, not just messengers, but, but high-ranking people in his country to get Balaam to show up. And this is the message he wanted delivered later. It says, let nothing hinder you from coming to me. And in verse 17, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. Whatever you say, how come I never find up in this situation where someone says, I'm going to give you anything you want? I never do. But he says, whatever you say to me, I will do. Balaam's a prophet for hire. He does this stuff for money. This is a crazy offer. The king. But Balaam, man, he looks like he's going to be solid. It looks like he'll be okay. Look at what he tells him in verse 18 of chapter 22. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house, and it was full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. Good answer. Good answer. Nice job, Balaam. God said not to. Good job. Until you get to verse 19. Numbers 22, verse 19. 
so you too, uh, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Uh-oh. But just spend the night and let's see, maybe we can work something out. So I just want to stop and make this point. When God clearly says no, hold tight to it. When God clearly says no, hold tight to it. Balaam did not. Own it. Understand who the creator of the universe is, the creator of you, the one who knows you better than anyone else, better than you know yourself. If he says no, hold tight to it. Balaam didn't, and it's weird. God goes back to Balaam at night, and I don't have this verse on here, but it's um, verse 20, if you're in your Bibles. And God came back to Balaam at night and said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Okay. So you have to understand that Balaam already went off the rails by not telling him to go home. He said, let's just see what God might have something more to say when God had clearly closed the door. But verse 21 says, So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Then verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went. Okay, And so God is not happy with the compromise that Balaam made. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. The angel of the Lord, more on who this is in a minute, but an angel with a sword stands in front of Balaam. Balaam is riding his donkey. And this is just a weird story. Balaam doesn't see the angel of the Lord. But the donkey does. Okay? You can make whatever metaphor you want out of that, that the donkey saw, but Balaam didn't. But I'm just going to read the passage. It's not going to be up here. I'm going to read. If you've got your Bibles, follow along with me. Verse 23, And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. And the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. Got it stuck. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either right or to the left. In verse 27, when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down. Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. There's a commercial that will bring tears to your eyes in all this. Some animal mistreatment. Then what everyone does know about is in verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you? that you have struck me these three times. The donkey's like, what? 
So Balaam actually answers, I'm not going to read it all, but Balaam actually answers and goes, well, because you made me look stupid. And if I had a sword, I'd kill you right here. You'd be dead. And the donkey's like, really? This is paraphrased, but it's in there. The donkey's like, really? Then, verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. Okay, angel of the Lord. Most theologians believe this is a manifestation of Jesus in person. The um, main reason for that is Balaam bowed, fell on his face, and the angel did not say, get up. Okay? In scripture, when an angel gets worshipped, they say, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. Um, so in this case, it's a manifestation of God. Most believe it's Jesus. I think it's awesome. Jesus shows up later um, to Joshua as they're heading into the land. Where I hope I get that sermon. We'll see. Um, he bowed and fell on his face. And instead, verse 35, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, <laughs> but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Speak only the word that I tell you. Hang on to that as we go. So Balaam goes to Balak. Balaam tells Balak, I can only say what God tells me to say. And so Balak goes and sacrifices a bunch of animals. Balaam's finally here. Okay, we got him. And in verse 41, and in the morning, which again isn't up here, Balaam, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. So he took Balaam up to this cliff or hill, and you just see a fraction of the people. I'll give you an idea of how vast the Israel nation was as they came through. And so begins four different oracles of Balaam. And if you have your ESV, you'll see them laid out there. And, and, and here's what you might not, as you've studied this or if you've heard this, these four oracles are really interestingly aligned with the threats and curses of Pharaoh in Exodus. And so we'll see as we go through. We're not going to, yeah, we're going to go through every single one of them verse by verse. No, we're not. Don't have time. Um, but you're going to see the themes of each one. And so the first oracle, um, no curses, by the way. <laughs> and we know that Pharaoh was worried that the Israelite nation was getting too large. Remember that? And in 23, chapter 23, verse 10, this is what Balaam says, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Note that Balaam is saying this in the very place that Balak has taken him to show how huge the nation of Israel is, but there's no curses. If you want to go home and you want to study Numbers 22 through 24 and see these things are just beautiful, but they're just blessings. So Balak calls Balaam, finally gets him, does a bunch of sacrifices. Okay, okay, Balaam, do your thing. And all he can do is bless the nation of Israel and God. In verse 11 of chapter 23, Balak says to Balaam, what have you done to me? I love it. I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've done nothing but bless them. And so Balak is holding tight to the idea that God's people could be cursed, and he doesn't let go. 
And so he brings Balak, he brings Balaam somewhere and tells him to curse the Israelites again. And God gives another oracle to Balaam. Pharaoh was worried about the strength of Israel, and he even decreed ethnically selected abortion. And here is part of Balaam's second oracle, verse 24 of chapter 23. Behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Um, Again, not a curse. Doesn't sound like a curse, smell like a curse, look like a curse, because it's not a curse, not of Israel, but of their enemies. And so God is taking a money-hungry prophet who abuses donkeys and a paranoid, awfulizing leader and using the opportunity to bless Israel. Over and over and over. And so now in chapter 24, we see another blessing. Remember, Pharaoh had baby boys thrown into the water, and that's how Moses was saved by his mom putting him in the, in the basket. And verse 7 of chapter 24, water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Balaam prophesies that Israel's children will, wa- will rise from the water and defeat her enemies. And in this... Verse 10, Balak says again, come on, man. Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. And behold, you've blessed them these three times. You wonder at what point Balak should kind of say, okay, maybe I should call somebody else. Um, But he doesn't. Um, He's just hanging on to hope. And Bala says, you're doing the complete opposite of what I asked you to do. And I hope you're able to see the humor in this. I hope you were able to see that God is using a fearful leader and a greedy soothsayer to bless his people. And in the fourth and final oracle, we see Jesus prophesied. Verse 17 of chapter 24. Listen to this. I see him now. I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Do you see the pointers? Maybe in Christmas um, you've seen this as one of the pointers to Jesus. A star shall come out of Jacob. And so I need us to understand what's fully happened. There's your review. There's your review of today's passage. One man set out to get financial gain has a tight grip on money. And God used a talking donkey to set him straight and then used him as a mouthpiece where he's supposed to be cursing God's people and instead what came out of his mouth were blessings for Israel. Another man set out to curse Israel by hiring said man, and God made him think he would get a curse, and then four times blessed Israel, including a prophecy of the Messiah. We see a man who loosened his grip on something he should have held tight. God's people cannot be cursed. And we see a man who needed to loosen his grip on the idea that people could be cursed 
by a Joe Schmo seer who worked for money. And we have only just scratched the surface of this passage. So I challenge you to dive into it on your own time. There is more to the story. One thing I want to make sure you understand is as you read Numbers 25, you'll see that as God is blessing his people, they are getting involved in sexual sin and some crazy stuff. You, you can see it in Numbers 25, and it's just such a wonderful picture of a rebellious people and a God who's blessing. So we've ended on this point, however, and on this verse, and this pointer to the Messiah as a reminder to us for communion today. And so communion is a time for us to remember what we hold tightly. It's a time to remember what we hold tightly. And if I can have Lydia just come up, we're going to spend some, a little bit of quiet time thinking through um, how some of this applies to us directly. And so Jesus is the one that told us to do this. And why? So that we would remember. Because Jesus' essential point is, listen, you're going to be tempted to loosen your grip on the truths about my sacrifice for you. And these points, as Paul said, they're of first importance. And if you don't know it, Balaam is mentioned in 2 Peter, in Jude, and in Revelation. He's like a popular guy in the New Testament, but not mentioned very, in very glowing terms. In each case, it's used as a description of those who put a tight grip on their own desires and loosen their grip on what God has done for them. And so may that not be said of us. And so Jesus gave us this remembrance to make sure we keep our grip tight. And I want to look at a passage in Colossians 2 to help us. And you'll see, as we're going to see three verses from Colossians 2, how beautiful this is. Verse 13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And so as we remember the broken body of Jesus, this verse reminds us that we're dead, that we were dead and that we're now alive and that we are forgiven. One of the truths that we need to hold tight to is that no matter what great shape we think we might be, we are in much worse shape than we could possibly imagine without Jesus much worse shape than we think or could ever imagine, yet we are forgiven. And so before we partake together and remember the body of Jesus, I want us to spend about a minute thinking about the things in our lives that we know we have a tight grip on, that God has said to us, you've got to loosen that grip. And I don't know what it is for you. It's probably not hard for you to come up with. What are the things that you hang on to tightly? If you need to check your Facebook feed and see what you're telling everybody that you're holding on to tightly, you can do that. 
but you know that there are things. And, and one of the challenges that Paul really lays out well in 1 Corinthians is that as we approach communion, it's our job, it's our responsibility to find those things in our lives that are in the way between us and God and deal with them. And so we're going to take a moment now, spend just a minute or so in prayer, thinking about the things that we know we're holding on to tightly and asking God to help us loosen our grip on those things. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us. Forgive us for those things in our lives, whether they're relationships, whether they're material things, whether they're our reputation, whether they're our career, whatever it is, those things that we know we are to hold on to loosely, and yet we grab our hold of them and make them our identity. Help us. As we do this together, as we remember together, helps to shed those things. Help us to become forgetful about those things and not forgetful about you. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Colossians 2.14, the, the very next verse says that God forgave us by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. One of the most beautiful pictures in scripture is that your debt and my debt that we owed because of our sin, God took it and nailed it to the cross. And so as we remember the blood of Jesus, we're reminded that while we are in much worse shape than we could ever possibly imagine in our sin and without Jesus, we are much more loved than we could ever, ever fathom. We are much more loved than we could ever fathom. The debt that, was, that we owed was placed on Jesus and he was nailed to a cross. He became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. And so we just want to spend another moment in prayer asking for help in understanding how much we are loved. And then ask for help to hold tighter and tighter to the fact that you are loved with an everlasting love and that that should be our identity. That should be what defines us.
may we get a tighter grip on that. Let's pray. Father, every one of us in this room can identify with Balaam, a man who in each situation just wants what he wants. We go there too quickly. And Lord, we can all also associate and, and really put ourselves in Balak's shoes, a place of fear, of not knowing about the future, of not knowing what the future holds and being scared. And yet you tell us and you tell us that our life is a vapor and that what has been done for us is an eternal gift that will set us to be with you for eternity. Lord, again, forgive us for that not being our identity. Thank you for this opportunity to remember. Thank you for wiring us in such a way that it's needed. We have to come together. We have to remember that our identity is in the broken body and the blood of Jesus Christ and in no other place. May we hold tightly to that. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The very next verse in Colossians 2, verse 15 is a wonderful description of what we've studied today. Colossians 2.15 says, after talking about nailing our debt to the cross, it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Isn't this great? In Jesus' life, God used an evil Roman empire and a religious elite who were using their influence to lead his people astray to accomplish the greatest blessing of all time, our forgiveness, our debt, nailed to a tree. God made a way for us to live in his presence. And so as the singers, the rest of the singers and musicians come up, I want to remind us we need to constantly evaluate those things that we keep a tight grip on. We've seen examples of folks today grabbing on all things that we know are not going to last, that we know will probably destroy them. And we've taken the time to remind ourselves of how the debt has been paid and how often we need to remember that and make it part of our identity. We're going to close with a wonderful song, Build My Life. And the idea is that God is so great. The gospel is so wonderful that we need to hold it with a grip that makes our knuckles sore. He's worthy of every song we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Please stand and we're going to sing that song now.